The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. That is from Handel's Messiah. Uh, if you're not uh, aware of it, it's the English language uh, Horatio from 1741, where Handel takes words from Scripture and puts it to the storyline of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, from Handel's Messiah comes the famous Hallelujah Chorus, and that chorus, For Unto Us a Child is Born, is probably the second most famous. And from that, uh, Handel uh, drew from Isaiah 9, verse 6, for the entirety of that Horatio and that section. Uh, I'm going to play that each week, uh, and next week I'm going to turn it up much more so it'll really blast us, but, uh, and we can celebrate together. But that's going to be the focus of our Advent uh, theme and study this year, uh, from the names of Christ from Isaiah 9, verse 6. So, if you have not already, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. It's on page 573. If you need a Bible, grab one in the pew rack. There are other page numbers there. If you have a different Bible or whatever Bible you have, Isaiah 9. And we are specifically looking at Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 6, but especially verse 6, where we get the theme of our Advent study, the royal names of the royal child, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're going to take each one of those names one at a time throughout the Advent season and consider uh, not only what they mean, uh, what the name means, but also the message that it has for us. Not just what the name is and what it means, but what it means for us as we believe in Jesus during this Advent season. The royal names of the royal child. So, if you've got your Bible there in Romans, or Isaiah chapter 9, let's pray together and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures. Heavenly Father, we, we pause now and we give thanks to You for Your Word. And we thank You for the truth that You speak to us here by way of Your prophet. And we ask that as we come now to the Scriptures that You would give us a full measure of Your Holy Spirit that we might have our minds illuminated to both read and understand with believing hearts the truth of Your Word. And not only to believe it, Lord, but to have our lives so shaped by it that we might bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. So, great God, come to us now by the reading and hearing and proclamation of Your Word that we might know You more deeply and follow You more sincerely, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now hear the Word of God from Isaiah 9, and we'll be reading the first six verses. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot on the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born." To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So do keep your Bible open. Um, we're going to be seeing not only here in uh, chapter 9, but picking up in chapter 7 and chapter 8 to get us to chapter 9, so you'll want to keep your Bible open. So, uh, maybe you have perhaps already started to decorate for Christmas, or maybe you're someone who decorates at the beginning of November. Uh, after Halloween, the Christmas decorations comes out. I have no prejudice to you for whenever you choose to decorate for Christmas because everybody enjoys it. And I think one of the principal reasons why we enjoy it is that when the time change comes and it gets darker sooner, everybody is looking for an excuse to brighten things up a bit. And there is nothing more delightful than to have our lives filled with the light of Christmas, especially in this season with all of its light and the decorations, to have the early darkness be illuminated as we enjoy the light of Christmas prefiguring the light of Christ who's coming into the world because darkness needs to be illuminated. We don't like living in darkness. We don't take delight in darkness. And that theme of light coming into darkness and the darkness being illuminated by the light of Christ who is coming into the world stands as the background for the, really the theme of Advent. Light coming into the world. And if we take that mindset of the joy of darkness being illuminated, then we can begin to understand something of the context of what Isaiah is saying here in chapter 9. Now, because it's difficult for us to jump into a book in a chapter, you know, deep into the book, I want us to really understand what Isaiah is doing here so that we can more deeply appreciate the significance of this prophecy. So we're going to be doing some heavy lifting on the front end so that we all understand what Isaiah is saying, to whom he is speaking, and why it matters, so that as we arrive at those titles in verse 6, they have the significance of meaning as they would have in the century that Isaiah was speaking and still into our time so we can understand the depth of meaning to these various titles of Christ. But the theme of light into darkness is the significance of this context. So let's, let's do some of the historical context so we can understand this. At this time, Isaiah is speaking to a nation of Israel that is divided. It's a nation of Israel that's actually divided into two separate kingdoms with two separate kings. There is the northern kingdom of Israel with their own king, King Pekah, and there is the southern kingdom of Judah with King Ahaz. And neither one of these two kings, King Pekah in the north, King Ahaz in the south, neither one of them is ruling righteously. Neither one of them is living obediently to the voice of God, and as a result of the king's unrighteousness, they are leading the people into unrighteousness themselves. Neither one of them are being faithful kings or obeying the voice of the Lord. And because that was true, they both live with threats on their shoulders. King Ahaz in the south is living with fear of invasion from the north. Invasion from Israel from King Pekah and also invasion of King Rezim from the nation of Syria. From a human standpoint, King Ahaz is in the south trembling because there is all manner of threats from the north. 
King Ahaz is leading his people in the midst of a hopeless, helpless, dark situation which he is responsible for. Ahaz decides that because he is in such a predicament as the king, he is going to seek an alliance with a foreign nation and the pagan king of Assyria. Now, uh, you know, militarily, externally, uh, that might seem like a good idea for the king of Judah to run to a foreign nation and say, please help us and defend us, except for the fact that God has told his people and told his kings repeatedly, when you're in trouble and when you're under threat, don't go running off to foreign nations. Turn to me. I'm your protector. I'm your defender. I'm the one who can provide you resources so that you can stand in the day of trouble. But King Ahaz doesn't listen to the voice of the Lord. He instead runs off to Assyria because he's convinced that that's the better route, which is an evidence of his leading the people in unrighteousness. So actually, come back to chapter 7 with me, and we'll pick up some of this context so you can see that Isaiah has been telling Ahaz, don't do that. Turn to the Lord for protection. So back in chapter 7, chapter 7 at verse 1, it says, In the days of Ahaz, king of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But it could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So this is a description of the people of Judah and King Ahaz shaking with trembling fear because an army has mounted up from the north and come down to threaten the people of Judah in the south and they are shaking as trees in the wind. But the prophet Isaiah is saying to King Ahaz, Ahaz, do not fear. In verse 3 it says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field. And Isaiah, say to him, say to King Ahaz, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. God is saying, through Ahaz, to Ahaz through Isaiah, don't fear those northern armies. They're just smoldering stumps before you. Don't fear them. God is saying to Ahaz, do not fear, but trust me. And if you come into verse 9, at the end of verse 9, he is telling Ahaz, Ahaz, you must be firm and you must stand firm. At the end of verse 9 it says, but if you are not firm in faith, then you will not be firm at all. The king Ahaz in the south is essentially being told, he's being warned, stand Ahaz in faith or you will not stand at all. That is God's word to Ahaz. And he wants Ahaz to stand. In fact, he says in verse 10, and the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ahaz, ask for me a sign so you can be confident in my promises and confident in my protection. Go ahead, Ahaz, ask me for a sign. But in verse 12, Ahaz responds, I won't ask. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask. And he tries to put a righteous spin on it. I will not put the Lord to a test. But the Lord just said, Ahaz, ask me. And he says, no. Why? Because Ahaz's mind is already made up. I'm going to make my partnership with Assyria, 
and I'm going to rise up against those northern armies and attempt to defeat them as they threaten me and my people. And God says, no. Ask me for help. Don't go to Assyria. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz says, no. So Isaiah responds back, speaking God's word. Verse 14, Therefore, since you won't ask, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Look at this text in verse 14. It looks familiar, doesn't it? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. So the context for these various Christmas texts and promises are in light of a nation that is deep under threat. And because Ahaz will not turn to God, God is saying, you are going to be judged and another ruler is going to be raised up. But you, Ahaz, this is what's going to happen because of your disobedience. If you come into chapter 8, in chapter 8 you have a description. Look all the way at the end of chapter 8 in verse 22. God tells Ahaz that because you have not obeyed me, Isaiah 8 verse 22, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into darkness. So Ahaz wants to have an alliance with a pagan king and God says no. And Ahaz says, I'll do what I want. I will be joined to a pagan nation rather than trusting in God. And as a result, God will judge Ahaz and set him aside from the throne to bring about a true righteous ruler. Now, maybe you want to go home and read all of chapter 8 on your own later, but this description of what God will do to the people because of Ahaz's disobedience is, is that they will be plunged into darkness, thick darkness, thrust at the end of verse 8.22, thrust into thick darkness. So don't miss it. Do not miss the context of what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is speaking to Judah, the nation, Ahaz the king, and the people of God, who because of their disobedience are plunged into a world of darkness, despair, gloom, and grief. And it's at this moment that we should pause and ask the question, might we be able to identify in some sense with this? People plunged into darkness and despair and sorrow and hopelessness. This is their situation. They got there by way of their unrighteous rulers. A nation cast into disarray, threats to their security and the prospect of a peaceful future cast aside and they are under threat because they have been unrighteously led. When the people can't trust their rulers, who might they turn to? That's what the context is. What hope is there if our rulers will not lead in righteousness? To that situation, into that darkness, into the people's hopelessness and fears and distresses, God speaks that's what he does. He speaks into hopelessness and he speaks into darkness and he speaks into fear. So God says, chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt, but in the latter time he has made the way glorious, the way of the sea. So what Isaiah is here saying is that there will be a time of distress. That's called the former time in verse 1. You come into verse 2, and his description is the people who walked in darkness. You have been in darkness. You have been in hopelessness. There was a latter time in darkness. But now something is coming. 
Something is coming that's emerging out of the darkness to bring hope in the midst of hopelessness. Because there is a latter time when they will, in verse 2, have seen a great light. Again, verse 2, the people who walked, walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now that's an interesting conjugation of the verb. It doesn't say shine or will shine. It's shone. It's past tense, right? There in verse 2. On them has light shone. Not because this has already happened. Because what Isaiah is talking about here is specifically the promises that are associated with the birth of Christ that are still 600 years into the future from this very moment in history. But Isaiah speaks of it as if it has already happened. Isn't that interesting? Isaiah can speak of the promises of God yet 600 years into the future waiting fulfillment as if they have already happened. Why? Because the promises of God are immediately evident to those who live by faith. The promises of God are immediately evident to those who live by faith. That means that a solid and secure promise of God is something that the people of God can lean on as if it has already come to pass, even though it's 600 years into the future. That's how sure and confident it is. On them has light shone. They lived in darkness, and yet they know the light. They are sustained by hope as they wait in faith. That means, Christian believer, there is no darkness that is so dark that faith in Jesus Christ does not bring illumination into. There is no such thing for you, Christian, as ultimate hopelessness or despair because of the promises of God are sure and fixed and steadfast and you can have confidence in them. The Christian believer learns to live by faith and all the promises of God are immediately evident even if they are distant in time. Because God is going to do something for these people. He is going to deliver them and He's going to provide for them. He's going to bring them joy. And these descriptions in verses 3, 4, and 5, if you look at them, they're, they're these wonderful pictures. In verse 3, it's picture of provision. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. It's a, a picture of a harvest. They have rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest. And also, at the end of verse 3, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. It's a picture of provision. Provision at the harvest. Provision at the spoils of war. When there's been a victory. And as a result of the victory, there is the benefit of that victory to be spread amongst all the people by way of the spoils of warfare. Provision at the harvest, provision at the spoils of war. But there's also in verses 4 and 5 pictures of deliverance as well. For the yoke of his burden and the rod of his staff, the rod of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. Verse 5, every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is a picture of deliverance in the lifting of burdens, right? discarding the means of warfare because there will be no longer a necessity of war as God is bringing illumination into this darkness and peace into distress. There will no longer need to be the, the instruments of warfare because there is going to be a coming victory by a king 
who will no longer rule in unrighteousness, leading the people into further darkness, but a king who will lead in righteousness, leading the people into illumination and light. A great king of David, the Messiah, the messianic king, to deliver once and for all his people, to deliver them into safety and security and provision, to deliver them into peace and to make his own people safe. That's what's coming. And then comes this wonderful contradiction, seemingly, right? Who is the one who will lead the people in this great victory of warfare, delivering the harvest and delivering the spoils and providing peace and protection? It's going to be a child. A child who is destined to rule. And Isaiah speaks of this child in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the nation of Israel has known other sons given to rule because the kingdom of Judah was a hereditary kingdom and the king's son would ascend the throne. And so there have been other sons of other kings, but they've all led the people to this place. There's a better king that's coming, Isaiah is saying. And of this king, the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he says, this is what you will call him because this is what he is called in verse 6. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His names are indicative of His character and demonstrative of His kingdom. These are not merely regal names given as at a coronation. Now, we don't live in the midst of monarchy, so we're not as familiar with this, but when King Charles III is crowned, he will be crowned. His Majesty Charles III, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of his other realms and territories, King, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith. That's his title. King Charles III will be that. Those are all very impressive, these regal titles. But the point is, they are temporary, because Elizabeth was those things. Formerly, Charles, Prince of Wales... That title's passed to his son, William. Even his hereditary titles, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Merowith, Baron of Greenwich, they pass on as well. Kings and queens and all rulers of earthly nations have temporary designation of status. And they pass away. These titles are not coronation titles. They're not given to the king just at the moment when they are crowned, but these are the eternal designation of the king's very nature, who he is within himself. Not just regal titles at a coronation, but a description of the king's own character. See him again? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now it's interesting as we consider this first one, so yes, all of that was introduction. Yes, take a deep breath, right? It's interesting that in Handel's Messiah, he inserts a comma between wonderful and counselor in the expression of the chorus, wonderful counselor. He divides them, but they're not divided. Uh, George Friedrich Handel puts a comma where there is no comma here because it is not wonderful and counselor, but wonderful counselor. So we're going to consider that title, Wonderful Counselor. And it seems like something of a dissonance on the surface, doesn't it? Wonderful and Counselor usually aren't the things that we apply together. We think wonderful and we say delight, and we think Counselor and we think distress. So what does Wonderful and Counselor have to do with each other? What should we make of this title, Wonderful Counselor? Well, first of all, what is this word wonderful? 
Wonderful. It's just an adjective, you might say to yourself. I had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I had a wonderful turkey dinner. Wonderful to be with family, or at least most of my family. It's wonderful. Wonderful. Maybe you're looking forward to or have already watched. It's a wonderful life. And you're going to listen to Andy Williams sing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And we throw the word out as an adjective without much regard because things are wonderful. But that's not what this word means here, actually. It's the Hebrew word pile, which means extraordinary, marvelous, miraculous, something unusual, uh, wonderful is what this word is. The closest English equivalent to this Hebrew word would be our English word supernatural. And supernatural in the sense because it is attempting to describe something of another kind that goes beyond human capacity. This word wonderful is used 80 times in the Old Testament, always with reference to God himself or to his works to describe how glorious those works are in a way of saying the only way to explain this is that the Lord himself has done it. It's wonderful. So, for example, in Exodus 15, after the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses praises God and says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So, the wonders are not just cool things, but they are miraculous, supernatural, divine acts that are a part of God's redemptive works. And it is a description of this child king who is himself wonderful. It's an unmistakable association with divinity. Only God himself is described as wonderful in the pages of Scripture. But this wonderful counselor is not just a counselor because we need to know what that word is too. It's the word yoes in Hebrew and it does just mean counselor. But the word counselor in this sense means the exercise of governance. It's a reference to the capacity to administer and to plan and to execute policy and to bring to fulfillment the plans that have been made. For someone to be a counselor is to be a regal designation of a governor. Now Israel had other counselors and other kings like King Ahaz, who was ruling so unrighteously that he brings the people of God into darkness. But there are other kings who are better counselors Uh, Kings like Solomon, who is known to be the wisest human on earth. And by his wisdom and by his counsel, he would bring blessing to the people. But the description of this wonderful counselor is to say, this is not just another earthly counselor. This is a divine counselor, transcending even Solomon in wisdom, revealing God's own will as God himself ruling and governing and bringing about order to his people in such a way to deliver them from distress and order their peace as a sure and certain security forever. Jesus is this wonderful counselor. So, what does it mean? What does it mean that he is this wonderful counselor? What does it mean that Jesus is your wonderful counselor? Well, It means more than he's just a better counselor than other earthly counselors that you're going to find anywhere else. Although that's true. It is true that Jesus is a better counselor than any other counselor that you're going to find. You should, without question or moment's hesitation, turn off Dr. Phil and open your Bible. Because Jesus is a much more wonderful counselor. 
But the description of Jesus as wonderful, remembering what it actually means, is that it is miraculous and supernatural and only being describing of God and His works, which fits exactly who we know Jesus to be. Conceived by the Spirit and born of a virgin, filled with the Spirit without measure, one who could speak and still violent storms with just a word, to heal the blind and the lame and leper, to raise the dead. The word wonderful is not just an adjective to describe Jesus. Jesus Himself is the great wonder. Fully God and fully man. He came to a people in darkness and distress saying, I am the light of the world. And friends, only Jesus, only Jesus can deliver you out of your darkness. Only Jesus can lift up the burden of your shame and of your guilt and of your sorrow. Only Jesus can wipe away the tears from our eyes and lead us out of captivity to sin and set us free. Light and joy and liberation are Jesus's to give. They are His gift. And He delights to give them freely to His own people as God's great wonder because He is God Himself. Where other counselors have to turn to additional counselors for wisdom and guidance and direction, Jesus has no additional counselors because He has no need of them. The King's wisdom is not limited in any way. It's not liable to compromise or error or bad judgment. The King doesn't fret whether or not he's making the right decision. This royal child is the exalted Christ who is the eternal source of all wisdom as God's wonderful counselor. So, finally, what does that mean? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for us? We should do two things. We should first adore His wonder. We should adore Christ's wonder and worship Him. That's something that this season really enables us to do, right? Because the Christmas season fills us with that sense of wonder and joy and delight and realize that only God could do this. Only this could be attributed to the divine works of a sovereign God because every other worldview and system of religion will tell you that if you want to be made right with God, you need to make your way to Him. You need to get yourself right. You need to do enough things. You need to perform enough works. And you need to make your way to God by yourself. But only in the Gospel and only in the Christian faith does it say to you, you don't come to God. He comes to you. And that is a wonder. Only in the Gospel will you find that all you must do to receive the forgiveness of your sins is simply to receive. Jesus doesn't come to us with a list of things that we must do in order to be made right with God, but rather, He comes to make us right with God Himself. And that is a wonder that we must adore at Christmas to bow down and worship Jesus Christ. We should adore His wonder, but we should also, secondly, submit ourselves to His counsel. Adore His wonder, submit to His counsel. Because the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2 that Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So let me simply ask that if you think you know better the way life should be governed, and if you think you know best how life should operate, I encourage you to try. 
And then when you find yourself coming up against the limits of your own knowledge, then you will find that there is only one, only one who possesses all wisdom and insight and knowledge to lead you into life which is truly life. All wisdom and knowledge are available to God's people through Jesus Christ. That means that if you are a Christian believer, you are equipped with all the wisdom and knowledge that you need to live a life that is pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. It's all for you in Christ. So we must submit to His Word, obey His command, and say to Him, Yes, Lord, when He issues forth God's Word to us. So we must adore His wonder and submit to His counsel because Jesus Christ is the wonderful Counselor. But you know what the good news is? He is also your wonderful Counselor. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice to know Jesus Christ as the wonderful Counselor, and we would pray that You would bless us, Your people, to take delight in Christ, indeed adoring His wonder and submitting to His counsel, that He might be glorified in our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.